0: Welcome to Classical Ideas, this is Greg Soden. A question I often asked as a child growing up part of a Catholic denomination was, why are there no women priests in our church? And the absence baffled me for many years. While some Catholics and even non-Catholics today are asking if priests are even necessary, especially given the history of sex abuse scandals, The Roman Catholic Woman Priests, often referred to as RCWP, looks to reframe and reform Roman Catholic priesthood, starting with ordained women. I found a book recently called Woman Priest, which is the first academic study of the RCWP movement. As an ethnography, Woman Priest analyzes the woman priest's actions and lived theologies in order to explore ongoing tensions in Roman Catholicism around gender and sexuality, priestly authority, and religious change. So my guest on this episode is Dr. Jill Peterfesso, the author of Woman Priest, Tradition and Transgression in the Contemporary Roman Catholic Church from Fordham Press. Dr. Peterfesso is Associate Professor in the Religious Studies Department at Guilford College. She is a cultural historian of American religion whose published scholarship focuses on gender and sexuality, resistance to authority, and social justice, especially in Roman Catholicism and Mormonism. In this conversation, Dr. Peter Fesso and I discuss how women priests navigate tradition and transgression, the RCWP movement within post-Vatican II Catholicism, apostolic succession, sacraments, ministerial action, and much more. Interestingly, if this conversation interests you, please know the book is openly available in digital formats thanks to a generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. So if you want to follow this show, you can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, and I really hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jill Peterfesso. Dr. Jill Peter Fesso, welcome to Classical Ideas.
1: Hey, Greg, thanks for having me.
0: I'm delighted to have you here. Can you spend a moment and introduce yourself to our audience, however you see fit?
1: So, professionally, I identify myself as a cultural historian of American religion. Um, I currently am an associate professor at Guilford College, which is a small liberal arts Quaker college in Greensboro, North Carolina. Nice. Yeah, and as a faculty member at such a small school, I teach a a really wide range of courses and subjects. So while my areas of research and publication to date focus on Catholicism and Mormonism, I also teach classes on the history of Christianity, teach on Jesus and film and pop culture, feminist theology, African-American religion, and also one of my personal favorites, I have a course on the Holocaust.
0: Wow, are you a department of one by any chance? (laughs) I'm currently a department of two. Okay.
1: um, But we have a number of staff who also teach for our department. So,
0: gotcha. More
1: more than that.
0: Sometimes it happens where I have a guest on who is a department of one at their college. Like I'm thinking like Chris Jones and Topeka and stuff. So, (laughs) I I just love hearing like the. the, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's really, it's gotta be surreal to, you know, be in higher ed and to be sort of isolated as far as like having people to bounce ideas off of in a department. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good on you for, for making the best of it. Cause, uh, it's, it's really hard work when you're, when you're isolated like that, you know?
1: Yes, for sure. Thankfully with great colleagues in other departments, I also teach in WGSS when women's gender and sexuality studies and good friends with a lot of folks in English and physics. So
0: wonderful. It's a, it's a good community. Well, I'm really interested in your in your academic path. I always ask guests to start off by mm-hmm. telling me about like sort of how they found their areas of interest and in academic expertise. And we sort of like trace the academic path. And I know you're interested in Catholic studies, uh, American religious history. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you can tell me about maybe some of the stepping stones that led you down this path that you've traveled to that defined you as an associate professor of religion today, like moments from youth or undergrad or mentors or grad school, anything that springs to mind as being really transformative for you.
1: Sure. So since we're here talking about my work on the Roman Catholic women priest movement, it seems right to start with my own Catholic upbringing. Um, Though I would never have been able to draw a straight line between my Catholic upbringing and this book. There's a lot of zigzags, which we'll get to (laughs) in a minute, but I did grow up Catholic. My family were the types of Catholics that would go to mass every Sunday or every weekend, every holy day. You know, we didn't eat meat on Fridays during Lent, all of that stuff. And then I went to Catholic schools from middle school through high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Catholicism was just something I accepted. Like, I didn't really push back against it. It just was what it was. And I was fine with that. One thing Sort of sticks out in my memory, was I went to an all girls Catholic high school mm-hmm. in St Louis, Missouri. Hey, we're from,
0: that's where are from?
1: From yes, we yes we're, and we're hopefully we'll get to talk more about that. I hope so. <laughs> so I went to a Coryezu Academy in St Louis, and you know we're it's a really great like high end Catholic all girls high school. You know we would our principal was a nun and she would always tell us you girls you're the cream of the crop, um, and we were like yeah okay sure yeah but. You know, I think most of us believed we could do anything in the world, mm-hmm. but what we could never do every first Friday mass, we couldn't say mass, mm-hmm. like they bring in a male priest for that. Um, and so it was in this very like strong woman high school with all these messages about what you can do in your lives, girls. And yet there was this one place where it didn't, where, where that didn't match up. Mm-hmm. And it was in the celebration of the Eucharist, which is the central part of our faith. So, you know, 20 years later, I'll write a book on Roman Catholic women priests. Yeah. But in terms of my interest in religion, um, my interest in religious study started in undergrad. So I went to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, which is another small liberal arts college, and we had to take four religion courses. Now, I did not think I would love this. I thought taking religion was going to be like what it was in high school and middle mm-hmm. school and grade school, which was terrible and dreadful and boring. Um, I was not stoked, but the third of my fourth required religion class was this class on the Holocaust. Um, And that course completely changed my life. It changed everything about how I see the world and what mattered to me. And so at this point, I was hooked in religious studies. And so even though I primarily studied English and theater in college, I did get a minor in religious studies, and I found myself wanting to study religion in grad school. So I went to Harvard Divinity School, got a Master of Theological Studies degree. Um, while I was there, I focused on pastoral care and counseling and also Christianity and culture. My advisor at Harvard was the wonderful Bob Orsi, who's a great hmm. Catholic studies historian. And oh yeah, legendary. Yes, awesome. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but Bob Orsi would have a huge impact on me and my work. Um, so these seeds are sort of getting planted along the way, but I, I'm still not arrived at cultural historian of American religion yet. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after Harvard. Um, I'd applied to law schools and was all set to do that. (laughs) I had a breakdown in my therapist's office at Harvard right before graduation, where I realized, oh my gosh, I actually don't want to go to law school. So I deferred law school, worked in a law firm just to be sure, and I applied to PhD programs. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So... I I look back on my application to PhD programs and I I see how enthusiastic I was and how completely unfocused Mm. I was. Like I was ready to go in any direction with my coursework and my research. I just wanted to do whatever I was doing really well. Yeah. Um, And truthfully, the scholar I am now, um, cultural historian, American religion is because of where I went to grad school. Had I picked a different school, I'd be a different person. We'd be having a different conversation. Yeah. But I chose UNC Chapel Hill um, I chose it because it was really, it felt like the anti-Harvard, it mm. was really warm, like literally it was warm yeah. there <laughs> and the people were warm and Southern and happy. And it, it was clear the faculty at UNC were going to be really invested in the students. And so I happily moved to North Carolina and my advisor, Lori Mackley Kipp, um, who's a historian of American religions, really um, had a huge impact on me from, from early on. And, and I, I think, where if we're we're getting to where Catholic studies becomes my thing, but, but we get there via Mormonism.
0: Nice. Because
1: my first semester at UNC, I took Lori's Mormonism course. And this was a turning point for me in terms of what subjects I wanted to study and what questions I wanted to ask of the mm-hmm. world. So again, we're talking about women priests, my first book today about the ordination of women in the Roman Catholic Church. Um which is a small group of women who've defied Vatican authority and they've been illegally ordained women priests, but Mm -hmm. they do it because they love their faith and they think that they're gonna help save Roman Catholicism. In Lori's Mormonism class, I learned to think about women and gender and authority, but through a Mormon example. Mm. You know, We were talking in Lori's class about social and cultural and textual and political histories of Mormonism. And I became intrigued with our discussions on gender and sexuality. And I thought a lot about the expectations placed on Mormon women and the rules and theologies around gay and lesbian Mormons and the rigid patriarchies, the limitations on women's authority. And I came to realize that the questions I was asking about Mormonism were the questions that I needed to be asking of my own faith tradition, Roman Mm. Catholicism. So it really is alarming to me when I look back how much I had imbibed the messages of Roman Catholic patriarchal authority or hierarchical authority, which is another term for that. Um, It took studying this other tradition, this other patriarchal tradition, Mormonism, um, in the really full and multifaceted way that we did in Laurie's course to to really invite me to turn my own attention and my own critical eye to Roman Catholicism. And I've never been the same since.
0: Do you did you? Did you feel any sense of disappointment or or anything like that whenever you realized that you actually needed to be focusing on your own entire life as well, like how did that go because that must have been a seriously transformative moment in your life.
1: It was a realization that I bet there were a lot of things that i've missed that mm-hmm. I could have been seeing and thinking about. Um, and then I had to ask myself, well, why wasn't I a feminist in high school? Mm. Why wasn't I thinking about gender and sexuality in in at Harvard? Like what what was it that tipped the scales in this direction at this time? Um, and I mean, of course, a lot of that has to do with the questions we were asking intellectually, but also a lot of it has to do with what starts to happen in your personal and professional life. And you start wondering, okay, how do gender dynamics, how do how do power differentials start to play into this? So yeah, then you sort of look back on your past and think, huh, there were a lot of things there all along, but they were invisible to me at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm okay with that. I, I don't beat myself up about that too much because I think of myself as a professor who loves introducing students to things that are all around us already, but we don't notice it or think about it until we do. Mm, so amazing. I've sort of turned this into a pedagogical approach for myself, which is, you know, I teach American religion. Students come into my class, they're like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm American, I'm, I'm Christian, like, I, I understand it. It's like, no, but, but you don't. Yeah. And here, let's really dive into it. And suddenly they're seeing the world in whole new ways. That bring them deeper into themselves, but also help them to understand their friends and neighbors and communities and our political system differently. So I think that's, I think my own experiences have allowed me to be a gracious guide as a professor.
0: Mm, Okay. So tell me about the, you know, coming to realize this, uh, this movement of woman priests within Roman Catholicism, like, were you presenting these ideas to like your, your your dissertation advisor, like what kind of supports were you getting that helped you hone in on this topic?
1: Okay, yeah. So this this actually brings in St. Louis. Awesome. It definitely brings in grad school. Um, I first heard about the Roman Catholic woman priest Movement in the fall of 2007. I was in a Catholicism seminar at the time, as it turned out. And I did need a research topic for that class. Mm. But so I started hearing about this very controversial ordination ceremony that was happening in St. Louis, Missouri, where I grew up, and it's because my family's still there, and my some of my best friends are there, and they were like, "Hey, have you heard about this? These women are getting ordained, and they're going to get excommunicated." Um, the other thing about it that, that really draws in, that really drew me in, was that because the women couldn't have an ordination at a Catholic church, you know, there these are women who, who stand outside the church. Um, they were seeking other places to have the ordination. And it was a Jewish reform synagogue that said, yes, you could, we we will host you. Um, And as it turns out, my Jewish relatives, I'm a quarter Jewish, my Jewish relatives went to that synagogue. So these two worlds were sort of colliding. My Catholic world (laughs) and my Jewish world were colliding at this controversial ordination of these two women who were in their late 60s.
2: Mm.
1: Um, And the archbishop in St. Louis at the time was very angry about this and kept putting out messages that this was highly illegal and highly irregular. And he was also very mad at the female rabbi who was inviting the women priests in. Mm -hmm. So I was just intrigued by the media and the stories of these women. I'm like, they're nice grandmas. Why why are we picking on them? Um, And I wanted to learn more. So uh, over time, this interesting story that became a you know, twenty-page research paper for a seminar became a dissertation proposal and a dissertation and a book.
0: Nice. How did your advisors take that? Were they like really like, yes, this is great, let's do this?
1: Um, I think no, they were very supportive, uh, largely because this was clearly a project I could do. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a little tangent where this was not my dissertation topic, and I was trying to do archival work in St. Louis, at the St. Louis uh, Archdiocesan Archives, and it was, I was finding it very difficult to gain access to the archives for a number of reasons that I largely blamed myself for at the time. Somehow I wasn't scholarly enough to get into the archives, but I've talked to more female scholars of Catholicism since, and they're like, oh, there's a lot of gatekeeping at the archives, so I was like, well, if I can't if I can't do a sort of by the book Catholic studies project, I'll go talk to these renegade women. They'd be happy to talk to me. And thus it became an ethnography where I really spent time talking to and going to, I uh, talking to women priests, going to ordination ceremonies and special uh, masses and things like that. So I just hung out with these women. I kind of described it as like, I hung out with this movement.
2: Awesome. And so
1: I became an ethnographer yeah. and that which is great. It actually suits me really well.
0: I love it. Well, okay, so you have this new book out, uh, Woman Priest, Tradition and Transgression in the Contemporary Roman Catholic Church, which is part of the Catholic Practice in North America series from Fordham Press. And I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about this series, uh, what the series seeks to accomplish around dialogue for studying Catholicism sort of here and now in the time we live in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this series is really cool. Um, I encourage folks to look look at the other offerings that they have in this, this this series that looks at the historical and cultural practices of Catholic, of Catholicism in North America, and also focused on the, I think there's like the contours of Catholic experience. Um, there are some really cool books, various biographies. There's the books about Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker. There's one on Stephen Colbert. Nice. So it, it's a really cool series. What I love about this is So I I believe that some of the most interesting and most important conversations about religion that we can have today, 2021 in America, focus on how people practice their faith and do creative things with their faith. Now this is in contrast to what church leaders say or what doctrine decrees or how a particular faith interprets a Bible passage. Increasingly Americans, and I include my students in this, are cynical about religion and its role in the public sphere. I understand why. And yet I still think it is so essential that we understand religion and people's religious motivations um, if we are going to understand the world around us. Mm. So we need to see the power of belief and the role of religious communities. And um, so this series that sort of takes a step back from, well, the church says this to this is what people are doing with their faith. This is how people have chosen to live out their Catholicism. This is how Catholicism actually is different things to different people, but still under Under an umbrella of legitimate Catholicism, drawing on the same sort of traditions and same sort of teachings. These are the kinds of stories that I think we all need to be listening to. Um, And these are the kinds of people, the kinds of scholars and the kinds of creative Catholics that I would want to hang out with as a scholar and a teacher.
0: So you mentioned getting to hang out with um, the the people who are in the book and becoming an ethnographer, being able to have these long, detailed conversations. Tell me about some of the main questions that shaped the process of researching for woman priest.
1: Um, I had so many at first. Um, What was true and what wasn't true was a big one, because this is a highly controversial group. So you get a lot of messages from church leaders that depict the women in a certain way Mm -hmm. and i wanted to know okay what exactly are they doing what exactly does the church say about what they're trying to do and why would they think they are well within the rights to do it but i think ultimately after sort of sorting through the histories and the traditions and and the women priests own uh, rhetoric and actions i it really came down to to two things for me Um, why do they want to be priests and why would they still want to call themselves Roman Catholics?
2: Mm. Um,
1: neither of those things should be a given. So there are books out over the past decade that say, why priests? Why do we even have priests anymore? There was an article in the Atlantic last year that said, "We it's time to abolish the priesthood.
0: That was an amazing article too.
1: Yes. Yes. By a former priest. Yeah. So priesthood is not a given. Right. Um. And why Roman Catholicism? There's we know that there are groups that are not Roman Catholic but are still Catholic. Mm-hmm. So my one of my mentors and advisors, Julie Byrne, who's up at Hofstra, she's written this wonderful book called "The Other Catholics," which is about the independent Catholic movement. And they have women priests, and they have ways of doing sacraments, and they have ways of doing ministries. And at no point are they like, "And we're also Roman Catholic." They don't. They don't even. They don't even sort of poke the bear in that way. Um, but Roman Catholic women priests, the group I study, they do claim that. So really the two driving questions were, why do they wanna be priests? Why do they wanna stay Roman Catholic?
2: Mm. And
1: from that STEM day, what the heck do they have to show us about contemporary challenges around gender and Catholicism and, and Christian conflict?
0: You know, I was, as I was reading the book, uh, I, an idea came to me, um, and it seemed like, so So, as a teacher myself, um, whenever people would ask me, why do you want to become a teacher? or Whenever I was younger, I'd say, well, I had so many bad teachers, maybe I can do it better. And it seems to me that there might be this idea that the failure of men priests was so profound in some ways that it maybe inspired some of the women priests to want to be priests more. You know what I mean? Like, do I have that right? Is that sort of an underlying motivation for some of these women? I think
1: you're onto something. I okay. Think there's definitely a big part of that. So I, I can address that and then I'll ex- expand on that. Sure. Um, you cannot talk about contemporary Catholicism without talking about the sex abuse crisis. Mm-hmm. And for the past 20 years, that's really shaped so much discourse in contemporary Catholicism. Um, And we've known about sex abuse in the church for about 40 years at this point. Mm -hmm. So yes, the massive failures of the institution of a patriarchal institution to protect the people um, is something that weighs heavily on the minds of these women priests for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, They also see themselves as invested in social justice in a way that the church is, but also isn't. for, for instance, I've seen the women priests become very political over the past five years. They, they've always been sort of political, but you know posting in social media a lot about Black Lives Matter, for instance, or the Me Too movement, things like that, that you will not see a lot of parish priests. Some would, but you would not see a lot of parish priests posting on those things because they're highly politicized. Okay. Um, they also want to bring equality to the church. I wanna say that what they're doing is also not just motivated as sort of negative against men and male priests, because they have a tremendous respect for a lot of male priests, and a lot of male priests are helping them covertly. I think that's an important part of this, that they are still intertwined. A lot of them are actually married to former priests also. Interesting. Which is something that that I talk about in the book a bit. Um, They are also motivated to be role models for women and girls. Okay. They're also motivated to carry on a legacy of, of activist, progressive, theologically driven women who came before them. Um, I, I've heard a number of women priests say, I'm doing this for my daughter and my granddaughters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's also that extra motivation. And, and I love personally, it. yeah, and personally they have a motivation that they, they love the sacraments and they love their church. Yeah, They just love it. The sacraments is this conduit of grace, this way of accessing God in, in this way in community um, that has been 2,000 years in the making. Like That's important to them. Mm. So all of these things sort of combine to make them think, no, this is this is the right thing to do. And I'm called to do this. The, the part of call is really important also. It's not just like they woke up one day, the way they describe it. And this is, I opened the book with their call stories they didn't just wake up one day and say, uh, "I think I'm going to go become a priest because it's a it's a good way to to piss off the guys in charge." Yeah, <laughs> they they really believe themselves called. Yeah, they believe themselves called. The church will say, uh, "You don't actually have a calling. You're you're mistaken. Only men are called." The women say, "Don't tell me I'm mistaken. I know what I know what God is saying to me."
0: Mm. You you begin the book in St. Louis, mm-hmm. uh, our mutual hometown. Okay. I went to Sacred Heart Parish in Valley Park when I was growing yeah. up. And, you know, I'm curious if you can tell me what other groups of women priests did you work with for this research? Are they all in St. Louis? Are they spread out around the country? Tell me about who your population is here.
1: Yeah. So there, the women priest movement started in Europe, actually, oh. in 2002. There was a group of seven women um, from Germany and Austria that had sort of been preparing for priesthood for a few years, and they went ahead and got ordained on the Danube River. They're known as the Danube Seven. Um. So the movement did start in Europe. But when it came to North America, and the first ordination in North America was on the St. Lawrence Seaway in 2006, the movement really exploded in the United States and also took off in in parts of Canada. So they are very big. The movement's very big in North America. Um, there There are women priests in Western Europe, and it is also starting to spread to places like South America and Central America, the Philippines and Taiwan. So it's definitely moving around um, the, the globe, but still highly concentrated in, in the Ameri- in America, the United States and in Canada. I spent the most time at the St. Louis church because I would go there once or twice a year. Sure. <laughs> because I was visiting my family. Nice. Um, actually think that this project highlight some of the challenges of trying to do field work in a in a diverse setting when you are on a grad school stipend yeah i think that's a whole other conversation i was able to visit congregations in minneapolis uh falls church virginia uh, new york city i think it was in brooklyn um, california several churches in southern california Um, so i visited a lot of places went to mass Oh, also oh Baltimore, several in Baltimore. A lot of places I could drive to. Yeah. And then I talked to a number of women priests by phone. I had over 60 interviews with women priests, either via email or, or by phone. So I really got to talk to women in all parts of the United States and Canada and a few in Europe who knew who were who were ready to talk in English.
0: Nice. Well, and so the Roman Catholic Woman Priests movement, or RCWP as you refer to it in the book, is a movement that I really had never heard of. And you know, you just uh, you, you've talked a little bit about the purpose of the group. Um, we've sort of been priming listeners for what they should know. You kind of just talked about the founding a little bit. Um, I'm curious about, you know, maybe some of the important people names within this movement that people should know as being foundational to getting this off the ground.
1: Yeah. So let, let me back up a bit. There, there's so many ways to take this question. Sure. Um, I think if we're talking about the foundations of this movement, we could start in 2002 okay. with the first ordination, but it's important to me to make clear that the movement for ordination in the Roman Catholic Church for women, women's ordination, really goes back much further and starts in earnest in the 1960s with Vatican II that happens in uh, 1962 to 1965, which is a series of meetings, worldwide Catholicism sort of questioning like what is the church in the modern world? What are we going to do and what are we going to be? And women start agitating at that time, asking for ordination and it doesn't happen. And in the 1970s, we get the the rise of the Women's Ordination Conference, which becomes this, I think there's over 25,000 members to date in the Women's Ordination Conference, which becomes this like active group working for women's ordination. And we get women's ordination worldwide in the 1990s. So there've always been over the past 50, 60 years almost, women asking, making making appeals, but making reasoned theological arguments, um, saying that women, should be allowed to priesthood. Um, Two of the big movers and shakers in the 1960s who were ordained then on the Danube River are uh, Ida Ramming and Iris Mueller. They're two sort of like the founding mothers of of women's ordination, theology, and Mm -hmm. activism. Um, So they were part of that movement, the the, the ordination on the Danube in 2002. and it, it shouldn't surprise us that this comes out of Europe because so much theology is really rooted in Europe and American women were really discouraged from studying theology, uh, Roman Catholic theology until like 60s or 70s. So um, so Ida, Ida Rahming, Iris Mueller would be two big names. Um, and then Christine Mayer Lumitzberger is the one who started the, the, the ordination group that was ordained on the Danube in 2002. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and oh, this movement so wasn't... No, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say, why boats? I'm, I'm curious with the ordination <laughs> on the St. Lawrence, on the Danube, because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm noticing a pattern here, waterways, instead right. of you know, in churches or in cities or whatever.
1: it has been a great metaphor, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, they chose the boats for a number of reasons. Some of it was practical, and I think they were able to extrapolate from the pragmatics something very beautifully metaphorical. Um, if you're on a waterway, you are not in any particular jurisdiction mm. of the Catholic Church. And so that sort of allowed them to, I think, sort of weave their way out of a particular jurisdictional issue. Um, they could also control attendance on a boat. Mm. Um, and you weren't quite sure who was going to show up or what what <laughs> what your visitors might look like. Um, are, are they supporters or are they not? Um, so that allowed them some some control over their their ordination ceremonies and then they they have some beautiful language about the waterways and and the work of water and and moving flowing water they talk about this I I talk about this a lot in my my one of my chapters on ordination um and they they think of themselves as being part of a stream Um, and this is this, this is this new stream, but it's bringing new life. Water is life giving and it's helping to infuse new movement and new life into the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. So, yeah, they used the boats for a while, but that that didn't last forever. Gotcha. Um, it got kind of expensive. And there were, you know, more people getting ordained.
0: You know, something else that really jumps out at me about Catholicism, uh, which is possibly related to a lot of the problematic things within like the sex abuse crisis is the marital policies, the celibacy policies within the church. I'm curious about RCWP's stance on marriage and celibacy for their priests.
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. The women priests in RCWP are not required to be celibate. As a group, they they publicly said they don't see any connection between celibacy and effective priesthood ministry. Mm. They, they don't see that those things are necessarily connected and they don't practice them. They don't require them. Many of the women in the movement are married um, or many are widowed. So a number of the women tend to be baby boomers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they're, they're an older group as, as a rule. Um, so many of, are married or were married. Many are mothers and grandmothers. Um, there are a number of women in the movement who are lesbians mm-hmm. who are in, in marriages um or in some same sex relationships but not married. So yeah, they they're happy to do same sex wedding ceremonies or or wedding ceremonies, um, which the church will not bless, which we found out about last week. The uh, there was a declaration about this or a statement about this. Yeah. So the women priests are definitely not not into enforcing celibacy, and they are very open to any kind of union, loving union.
0: As someone who has never seen a mass led by a woman priest myself, I'm mm. curious about some of the differences that you have observed between a mass led by a woman priest versus a man in a Roman Catholic church. So, like, if there are differences in like ways of speaking or mm. like. Or, or garb of like what is worn or, you know, where mass is held. Like what kind of variations are you noticing with woman priest led churches or, or masses and then man led masses?
1: Yeah. So, so many good questions in that one question. I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> they, so when I first started going to the women priest mass, masses, I was like, yeah, this is totally familiar. Mm. But on the other hand, I was like, this is totally different. Amazing. It was both things at the same time. And and that was cool because then invited me to really try to parse what the heck was going on and where it felt very similar and where it felt very different. Um I want to honor the many stories I heard from the women priests themselves and also other people who I talked to who attend women priest masses or have seen masses or have seen uh, church services done by Episcopalian women priests because Episcopalians, you know, are also sort of high church, like Catholicism to what looks and feels a lot like a Catholic mass mm-hmm. um, and how when they first see a woman celebrating mass that they they physically react like very emotionally, like there's crying and there's just an opening. I think there's a lot of that that happens for people. Um, My own engagement with these first masses was, I think I was in a more cerebral space. Um, I was immediately struck by gender inclusive language in all the prayers. So Mm. we're just talking about Lord, like we're talking about God. It's not, not God the father, it's God father and mother or mother God. So a lot of that language was changed. Um, it wasn't about he and his and Lord and King, but, but much more gender open or gender neutral. Um, the women priests are about sharing sacramental authority. I, my chapter on sacraments talks a lot about the sharing of sacramental authority. And so as a community gathered, we all participate in consecrating bread and wine which is not something that happens in the official church, like in Mm -hmm. the church, the priest does this and we are there to support, but the priest has this way of changing bread and wine into body and blood. But in women priest masses, it is made clear that we are all participating in that sacramental change. And there's something very powerful and moving about that for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Women priests, sometimes wear the vestments, like the full vestments, Um, and sometimes they just wear a stole. And some women priest communities have stoles for everybody who's there. And so everybody puts on a stole. So everybody's able to feel that they're sharing an authority. So I think that's one of the main things that I take away now when I go is that I see that it's not me passively sitting there waiting to receive a message from a priest or some sort of sacred transition of transubstantiation of bread and wine into body and blood, but I'm a part of that. Mm. And that's what the women priests really invite you to do. And it feels really cool once you sort of understand what's going on, at least it does for me. It's, I think it's really neat to be part of that. Um, One of the women priests who I have spent the most time with, Elsie McGrath in St. Louis, she often does um, what's called like a dialogue homily. So she'll give a homily, her homilies are amazing, deeply intellectual, very thoughtful, very progressive social justice oriented. Um, But sometimes she'll invite those of us who are there to participate as well. And that's really awesome. It's like being in a class. It's like being in a seminar style class where you get to hear other people talk about the message. So really there's this sort of shared experience that, you don't get the sense that the women priests are, I'm just stepping into the role of priest and I'm going to do all the things. It's I'm stepping into the role of the priest to change the type of dynamic around authority and holy exchange that we have going on here.
0: Amazing. Um, it, it, like whenever I go to St. Louis, like I actually want to experience this now for myself because I never have. So I may have to hit you up for some contact info sometime. I can do that. Nice. Um, you know, something else that really jumps out at me is like, uh, I think longtime listeners of the show will know that I'm like super into like punk rock music and stuff like that. And so like, I have like this sort of like, tr- um, uh, sympathy for, for transgressive sort of like, um, movements in that regard. And I find this movement to be so inspiring because of the way that it acknowledges the beauty of sacred traditions that these women hold dear while also, you know, smashing through some walls and some ceilings. I mean, it's wonderful. And a line that you have in the book is that I loved is women priests do not ask for permission to become priests. They just do it. And I'm curious about the response from the Vatican, um, in, in in what they have done to respond to the, you know, the bravery of this movement and how they have been received by the Roman Catholic authorities of the Vatican. Tell me about the reaction and the butting of heads from both sides.
1: Yeah. I, thank you for pointing out that line. Um, I'm smiling over here because yeah, they, they've not been received well. Um, you can sort of, you could sort of set that one up. You can yeah. see that coming. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about the women priests overall philosophy and mission, which will sort of feed into why the church is not happy with them and how the church has responded. So the the Roman Catholic women priests is deliberately tackling a particular Canon law. It's Canon 1024. Mm-hmm. And that Canon reads only a baptized man can validly receive sacred ordination.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they don't buy it. A lot of feminist Catholic theologians over time have not bought it. They're like, this is this, canon is not authoritative, yeah. Um, and we, we're going to push back against this. So the women priests, yes, as I talked about earlier how there's a whole lineage of activist women women's ordination um, scholars and theologians who have been trying to change things, and it just hasn't, nothing's changed. In fact, like the 1960s was when we saw sort of the, the surging movement for women's ordination, and in the 1970s, there was a document that came out in English in 1977 called Inter the question on the admission of women to the, to the ministerial priesthood, the full name of the document. It, that's really the first time you get a, a reasoned theological defense of an all-male priesthood.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Before then... The thousand plus years before that, it was sort of just this accepted thing. It was in canon law, but it wasn't until the late seventies that the church started making theological arguments. So instead of opening to increased progressivism in the culture, the church started to tamp down even more. And that's going to sort of rile up your, your, your progressive Catholics. Mm -hmm. So, so the women priests say, we've got to take down, we got to break, we got to break this law. Yeah. canon 1024 is the law we must break um and by breaking this law we're going to help the church and they the movement's mission is we are a new model of ordained ministry in a renewed catholic church they want to re they want to renew and reform the church but they want to do it from within they see the church struggling in so many ways uh catholic catholic sex abuse crisis for instance declining numbers of vocations declining of members in the united mm-hmm. states um, so the, the women priests believe that they have a way that they can help. So in response, the, the Catholic Church has excommunicated all of these women. So, oh, great. Yes. I want to make very clear to read to the listeners that, that these women are not welcomed with open arms in any way by the official Roman Catholic Church. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about the series on Catholic practice in North America, sometimes it's the people who are breaking the rules and doing creative things that are the most interesting Mm
2: -hmm. and the most
1: revealing about like where the growing edges are in a tradition. So yeah, they're all excommunicated. The the form of excommunication that they are under, um, it's called lati Sententiae. It basically says the women excommunicate themselves upon attempting to be ordained. Gotcha. So since 2008, there was a decree that said like here from like from here and out, you excommunicate yourself if you try. So yeah. the church didn't have to sort of come after each individual woman priest.
0: You know, so. I'm really glad that you said that these are the most interesting people, because to me, something like Canon Law 1024, and this is just my personal opinion here, but I find that to be extremely boring um, because <laughs> I mean, if you if you realistically assess the sustainable future of what it would take to sustain a religious community for the long term over the next couple of centuries the obvious answer stares us in the face i feel um and i'm i'm wondering about the conversations that you've heard coming out of the vatican about canon law 1024 can this be changed at basically any time? Uh, is it easy to change to it? Has Pope Francis had any movements on this? I'm, I'm just curious what you've heard about, about this uh, on their end.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the church, the, the answer is a pretty firm no. The, the question that some scholars have, Catholic school, study scholars have now is whether, whether the teaching of a male only priesthood is in fact uh, an 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 infallible teaching so that is something that has come up um there was a document in 1994 Ordinatio sacerdotalis that said that hey i know you're still asking women about being ordained but this is this is the church has no authority whatsoever to overturn this canon basically Mm. um and so, it is to be definitively held by all the faithful. So, and there, again, there are theological arguments for this. We, we might talk about this later when it comes to the in persona Christi piece. Mm-hmm. But basically, women can't image Christ because they're not men. Mm. And, and you need to be able to be a man to image Christ. So mm. Part of the theological explanation. It's more complicated than that, but it, that's part of it. So, no, Pope Francis. Pope Francis is such a paradox in this way because many progressive Catholics are applauding a lot of the ways he's returning the church to to messages of simplicity, talking about poverty. You know, he he is aware of the political strife that is happening in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, he is aware that coronavirus is a thing that we can control with masks, science. So, yep, right. So he, um, you know, he's really progressive, friendly in some ways. But on issues of gender and sex, it's still a very—the door is closed, mm. I will say. But that's also what—that's also what Pope Francis has said about the the question of women's ordination. I will say, um, Pope Francis started um, a commission to—this was in 2016—to to investigate whether women might be admitted into the diaconate, which is sort of like before before priests are priests, they're deacons, yeah, and after priests, they can become bishops. Um, not all do, obviously. So there's a there's a deacon and there's a permanent diaconate, which means you never can go up to becoming a priest. And so Pope Francis was looking into whether women might be able to be members of the di- diaconate. Mm-hmm. And the, the conclusion was it's inconclusive. We need to study this more. Um, but historically, I just, I want to point out this, I talk about this in the book, but your listeners might be interested to know, there does seem to be a lot of first millennium Information to suggest that women were deacons at some point.
0: Ooh, interesting.
1: So yeah, even even I, I think it's Romans talks about the deacon Phoebe. We have we have things written on walls and caves and archaeological stuff. So interesting. That's what I'm grasping for. So there are many historians who say yeah, it looks like women were ordained in, to a type of ordained authority in the first millennium, and the women priests I I study draw on that.
0: You mentioned earlier um, the concept of in persona Christi. Yeah. And I want to talk about that chapter because it's it's such a wonderful chapter of your book. Tell me about what in persona Christi means again, and then I want to talk a little bit about the importance of bodies within Catholicism.
1: Mm-hmm. The idea of in persona Christi is to be like, to be in the person of Christ, to, to stand in the person of Christ. I talked earlier about the document Inter ignores that came out in 1976, 1977, which was the first real theological defense of an all-male priesthood. And one of the main reasons was, well, Jesus was a male. And so a priest has to be male or else it would confuse the faithful. Mm. Like the sacramental gestures of the priest would not work and the people would be confused. The other argument is that Jesus was a male who chose all male apostles. And so obviously it's Christ's will that men be priests. Okay. So the, the in, the in, per, the, the in Persona Christi, the women priests say we can be in, in Persona Christi too. The church will say we can't. The church will say you can't because we're not male, but we say that we can. And the, the chapter that you're referring to, my chapter on bodies and women standing in Persona Christi really looks at what might be new messages, new symbols, new signals, um, new reads on gender and sexuality. If we do envision a woman priest as representing Christ, like why, why does it have to be that because Jesus was male to stand in persona Christi, you must be male. Why not, if you stand in the role of priest, you start to expand out what the idea of what being Christ-like means.
0: Mm Something I'm really interested in as well is uh, queer priesthood. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Atlantic article that you talked about earlier, Abolish the Priesthood, speculates on the sexual orientation of many priests, which was a <laughs> detail that jumped out at me a lot when I was reading that. Yeah, um, They're required to take vows of celibacy, and their, you know, sexual orientation is... Uh, widely speculated upon within that piece and I would encourage anybody to read it if they haven't but you know I recently also did a, an episode about queer priesthood with the Metropolitan Community Church historian Lynn Gerber who works in San Francisco and I want to know about queer priesthood in relation to In Persona Christi
1: I, I listened to your episode with Lynn Gerber that was fascinating so good you shared that that was great um a note if anybody who's listening is curious to know more about the sexual orientation and practices of priests my go-to scholar is Mark Jordan um, who's one of one of the most amazing scholars that I've gotten to work with over the years and he writes a lot about homosexuality and and Christianity but has done some great work on Catholicism priesthood and 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 gay culture. Okay. So yeah, there's to, to your point, Greg. There's a lot of speculation as to how many priests might be gay and how many are actually celibate. Mm-hmm. And the, the the reading I've done on this, it's usually pretty striking. It's not like oh, you know, a handful of priests are not celibate. It's
0: uh-huh.
1: a, a vast majority. Um. So when I when I'm talking about queering, I talk about queering the priesthood as an aspirational aim for the women priests. And what I mean here, it's about the way that the women priests can and do and yet don't quite yet play with the gender complementarity idea that's embedded in the church. Let me unpack that a little bit.
2: Sure. The idea of
1: gender complementarity or theological anthropology. is this idea that there are two genders and they have two very different roles to play. And men need to be this and women need to be this. Mm-hmm. And the priesthood division where men can be priests and women can't uphold that. Um, that's gender complementary. That's the theological anthropology. The women priests make some really interesting arguments about whether they should be priests or not. And a lot of the women priests, especially in the early decade of the movement, were saying, we need women priests because women are more nurturing and women are more caring and women are able to do this because they've been mothers and women are able to be like this because sometimes they have grandchildren or they need, they can be like this because they've been wives and wives help husbands in this way. So I, hopefully you can see that what I'm drawing on are some pretty big gender stereotypes about women. hmm So in some ways, this upholds the women priest arguments, we can be priests that are different. And that's what the church needs, because we're women. And yet, that's not a queering of the priesthood, because it's still upholding a gender binary. Sure. So, so the women priests are in a position where some of them are starting to say, I'm not going to make an argument based on my gender for being a priesthood, I'm going to say that equality and character and faithfulness to the gospel and ability to minister to all different types of people are really what's more important than the fact that I am quote unquote nurturing mm. or I am quote unquote a good wife. So yeah, that that's where I get really interesting I really interested in this this potential for the women priests to queer, to do this queering, queering as a verb of the priesthood, where they destabilize the gender binary that so upholds Roman Catholicism. And instead, they start to envision new ways of thinking about priesthood as actually being removed from gender, which Mm. now it isn't. I I think if you Google imaged Catholic priest, it would be all men. Yeah, (laughs) It would be this very quintessential idea. But if women start to destabilize that idea how 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 opening that might be for different forms of ministry and different theological ideas you know if, if we if suddenly women are imaging christ not because they're nurturing and caring like we think of christ but because all forms of gender can image christ non-binary people trans people if all if everyone can image christ gay people straight people asexual people i think that's a i personally think that's a really beautiful thing to say about christ and what the church canon canon might be.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, you know, in, in the conclusion of the book, you talk about you you take the the book past the researched material, which ends in 2015. So the conclusion goes beyond that. And I'm curious about what are some of the biggest changes regarding the movement for the ordination of women and religion in the US from the time you finished researching until today. Like, what are some some developments that you've seen after the researched material was gathered?
1: I think what I'm seeing with the women priests specifically, um, I mean, they're still growing as a group. They're still ordaining more people. In some ways, they you know they they're drawing more and more people into their communities. Um, I think. I, this is where I would want some of the women priests to, to chime in, who, you know, mm-hmm. talking in 2021, as opposed to me speaking for them, but something that I've observed, um, I think the Trump era has made them a certain type of activist. Mm. Like I've seen them, you know, they're on Facebook and they're, I am on listservs for the groups and they seem to be really getting into a certain type of Catholic activism around social issues. So I've seen a lot of that happening for the women priest movement. Um. There is, there's no sign that anything's going to change in terms of the Catholic stance on women's ordination. So, you know, but Pope Francis has not changed this. Um, there have been more statements about, no, we're not going to ordain women. At the same time, there've been more revelations about Catholic sex abuse around the world. So will women priests continue to be like, okay, I, we still think of ourselves as a very viable alternative. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with the growth of the movement, I, I, I think they've built some really wonderful communities. Um, the question is how much they can continue to grow and, and I, I wonder sometimes and I talk about this in the conclusion like is it is it too late, are the women priests, the right thing it's just for the wrong time. Because so many Catholics are just really disillusioned, I think a lot of the types of Catholics who would gravitate towards women priests are really fed up with a lot of elements of the Catholic church. The Catholic sex abuse crisis is responsible for a lot of defle- defections from the church. So
2: mm.
1: yeah, the, the movement's still growing. I, um, most of them have moved to Zoom over the past year. Yeah, I've been to a Zoom mass and um, so they're still trying to do the work, the, the work of growing their communities but also the work of, you know, being safe during the pandemic and being aware of social issues.
0: Say there's people within the congregations, uh, within parishes who agree with the woman priest movement. Um, are there any things that people can do, like, or men in positions of leadership, or just normal congregants? What can they do to, you know, help push this along if they wanted to?
1: Um. Well, I mean, I think there are a number of things. People who are who are intrigued by this idea of. of the Roman Catholic women priests, like the women priests have a website and you can find masses, you can find services and you can definitely participate. Now they are not all over the country. They are not here in North Carolina. They weren't here in North Carolina during the majority of my research. So that that was part of a challenge of just getting to a service nearby but they are in a lot of big metropolitan areas. Um, And like I said, right now, many are on Zoom. So I think if you're interested you could definitely check out a woman priest led mass. they, they are different, but they're, they're also, they also feel very holy. Mm-hmm. Um, you
0: know, yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering as well about like other religions as well, like Orthodox Judaism, mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier Mormonism. So the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day saints, has there been any um, movement within ordination in, in any other traditions that you're noticing? Is anybody moving any faster or slower than Roman Catholicism?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, it's yes and no. It's funny though. The women priests I study take a lot of their early activist ideas, sort of their, their ways of doing like, you know, performative or or performance-based, like activism comes from the example of the Episcopalian women in the 1970s who, who did these sort of illegal ordinations. They found men in good standing to ordain them and they got ordained, and then eventually the Episcopal Church was like, OK, we're going to start ordaining women to the priesthood. The Catholics did the same thing with the Roman Catholic women priest movement. It just hasn't had the same result. Like, that the church has not said, OK, you're right. We'll let, we'll let you in now. Um, the Mormon example is, I think, my favorite example to compare women's ordination in the Catholic Church to. So yes, Mormons had this big ordained women movement that started, I believe it was 2013. Um, and there was some teaming up between like RCWP and the ordained women's movement for a while. It was really cool to see there were some panel discussions and overlap and like, what can we learn from each other? Um, what are the differences that like the big, the big thing with Mormonism is that Mormonism is a tradition that's open to revelation oh, yeah. and open to changes in scripture. That's an open canon situation. So, you know, just as sort of famously 1978, um, there was a, a revelation that allowed the church to say, yes, we're going to ordain black men to the priesthood. There's no reason to think that in Mormonism, in terms of structure, like what's possible, that that the Mormon prophet and president wouldn't have a revelation that would say, yes, we should ordain women. Mm. Um, I don't think that'll happen for a number of reasons, but it could happen. And if you look at survey data, when you ask Mormons about this, like the number of Mormons who say they'd be willing to accept women into the priesthood skyrockets when, when you, when you say, because you know, the prophet had a revelation ah. now that because that, so Mormonism has this, like, like yeah. it's like an ace in their back pocket or something like if this card gets played, it's going to be okay and that could happen. Again, I don't see this happening for a number of reasons, but um, it could. Catholicism is really different. You've got 2,000 years of tradition that the church is going to draw on. So Catholics don't have that same kind of possibility. Gotcha. Um,
0: Yeah, the public opinion polling that you included in the book was really fascinating as well, especially the the data on how the the opinion changes whenever you talk about revelation within um, LDS. Is there any public opinion of polling available on american catholics on their views of women ordination
1: yes yeah it's I, I i don't want to quote it without having it in front of me but it's somewhere in the order of like 60 to 70 percent of wow catholics and former catholics in the west now we have to be really careful and it's the, we're talking about the like western europe and and north america yeah when you start asking these questions and the data i just quoted and pretty much is was just america but Yeah, like Western European Catholics and North American Catholics are very open. That's not surprising given our culture and that more advanced women's equality. Um, But the vast majority of Catholics in the world now are not in North America and they are not in Western Europe. They are in parts of Asia and Africa and South and Central America and a lot of those places have no interest in women priests statistically, like very, hmm. very small numbers. It's not a thing. So I, I know those of us in the West, in the Western church speaking, you know, as somebody who's raised Catholic, we like to think of what we want as the thing that's best for the church worldwide. But to start a conversation with a, a Catholic group in parts of Asia or Africa about women priests would be like, we're, we're talking decades of change of thinking about gender roles. They're yeah. not there. And the church is over a billion people around the world, not just in North America.
0: Yeah, so, okay.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a much bigger issue. I, yeah, again, we like to in the West to think, well, we we think this is a good idea, and it is, so we should do this. But there's like the, the biggest chunk of Catholics are not here. So we have Man. to think about how that would impact them as well.
0: Gotcha. Well, you know, something as I as I bring us um, in for a landing here today, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking about my my uh, situatedness within all this as well, having grown up Catholic, You know, and as I walk through this world in this male human body and look around at the world around me, I feel like I, I, I feel like I want less men in power generally like I desire far more women in positions of authority. I think about like the history of wars and child poverty and greed and bluster and arrogance. And I find myself wanting men to be quieter just in general. And I realize the irony of this statement, considering I'm making a podcast and we're talking about this, but (laughs) I would like to think that I'm doing this show out of a state of wanting to understand more deeply as opposed to wanting to evangelize for anything in particular, um, Mm -hmm. except for the betterment of humanity and societies, you know, and, I just love asking questions to folks like you who do really cool work, um, highlighting the amazing bravery of a lot of groups. But I see this as a time when if we're going to have sustainable spiritual communities, it feels like having women in leadership in every community feels like a no brainer. And I'm wondering if you would think that RCWP agrees with that um, just in their, in the, their general goals for the future.
1: Um, thank you for that sentiment. I, 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 I don't. I try not to speak for the women priests. I try to analyze the way that they speak for themselves. But I think it sort of goes without saying that, yes, women, women, especially in positions of authority in the Catholic church would go a long way toward reforming and helping the church. I also think that a lot of women priests today, if they were here, they would say, and again, I just said, I didn't want to speak for them, but I'm, I'm trying to intuit based on what I know. I think they'd also say, yes, and... We also need people of color, and we also need people of different different sexual orientations. And we, and I mean, sort of, sort of going down the line and trying to bring in as many voices as we possibly can. Um, I want to be clear that the women priests would not position themselves as an anti-male movement. They're Mm -hmm. an anti patriarchal patriarchal movement there are even men in the roman catholic women priest movement it's a small group i only talk about them a little bit in the book Mm -hmm. but these are men who couldn't be ordained otherwise these are gay men Mm -hmm. um, who are in marriages who the church would say nope we we, we can't have you so there are also men who are part of their movement so i think they're very much about amplifying voices that would otherwise go unheard Mm -hmm. um, and doing that in service of one, overturning oppression, and just to make clear that this is a group that is about like a deep love and respect for the faith traditions and the sacraments, and so they are a ministerial pastoral group, and their belief would be doing these things, changing authorities, including more people at the table, is spiritually the correct thing to do. It will help people to to find better, more meaningful connections with God. And that's, mm. that's you know, one of my big conclusions in the book is these women, why, why do you want to be priests when the culture is really against you? Why do you want to stay Roman Catholic when you're getting excommunicated? They believe that Roman Catholicism is too precious to lose um, the sacraments and the histories and the traditions. And they believe that God has called them to this and they are honoring that call. Mm. And that's very important to them.
0: What, uh, what projects do you have in, in the uh, in the pipeline for yourself for future works?
1: Um, so currently, uh, I'm, I'm growing out of some courses I've taught at Guilford. I am working on um, Disney, thinking about Disney as, as an American religion. Wonderful. So, yeah. So I love teaching about Disney. It's a great way to do some of that work of, we talked about this earlier, where, oh, yeah, I know what Disney is yeah, students are like, yeah, you know, I watched Disney movies. I went to Disney World once. I totally understand it. And then you stop and unpack it and you're like, okay, oh my gosh, this is so much richer and deeper than I ever would have. I had no idea it was changing the way that I think or see the world or understand myself as an American. So that's the work I'm doing right now. I'm also starting to do a lot of work. This is a little bit sadder. Um, Your listeners are probably aware of this, but You know, the humanities and religious studies are in a lot of trouble right now, Um, they're getting cut at a lot of schools. In fact, at my own school at Guilford. um, uh, My department and my job were eliminated last last fall Um, 20 of 20 faculty, most tenured faculty, mostly tenured faculty lost their jobs at Guilford and 40% of our programs were eliminated um, at Guilford, including pretty much all the humanities and all the hard sciences except English and biology. So, thanks to the AAUP at Guilford and um, some alumni activism and fundraising, we were able to overturn that. So, mm-hmm. as of now, religious studies is safe. I have a job, which wow. is great. So do my colleagues. Um, but not all schools are so lucky. And I, I'm, I'm really, I've been speaking at conferences and doing some work around this, and having sort of been through the fire and come out the other side relatively unscathed. I want to try to you know, help help to save the humanities and religion i uh, the study of religion i i can't understand how anyone doesn't think these things are important so clearly we need to be better at our messaging it's one of the many things i appreciate about this podcast that you do because you're you're amplifying the voices that that do this critical study of of religion and we need that i, I don't know how we can think we don't
0: that in and of itself is worthy of an entire separate podcast interview, Saving the Humanities. Wow, that's incredible. I'm delighted to hear that uh, you had some fortune there and that you are fighting hard. But Dr. Jill Peter Fesso, author of Woman Priest, Tradition and Transgression in the Contemporary Roman Catholic Church from Fordham Press, thank you so much for your time, your descriptive storytelling. The, the vividness of this conversation has just been absolutely wonderful and i'm just super grateful to you for your time today
1: and greg if i can just throw out one final thing we didn't get to talk about the book is free it's oh, yeah. part of a sustainable monograph series which is pretty awesome so you can go to amazon and download it the the e-copy is completely free so check it out